You are listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we continue our series of exploring paths you might take to further your relationship with Jesus with a series we are calling Three Paths to Following Jesus. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. Several years ago, Ellen and I ordered some bar stools for our kitchen that we needed for uh, a, a high top table. And when I did that, we ordered them from Amazon. And I got to tell you, I'm not great at delayed gratification, so I love Amazon Prime. And so I ordered this stuff and I'm waiting for it. I'll follow it, you know, I'll follow the tracking stuff all the way till I find out it gets delivered to my house. So when I get home and I open the front door, I mean, the boxes are rather large, uh, as you would imagine for these bar stools. And so as I open them up and I, I open up the door and I see the boxes, the boxes are all torn up. There's holes in it. They're scratched up. There are pieces of the box missing. And you can imagine your response is great, great. I mean, I did wait a whole 48 hours for them, so they should be perfect. And so I open up the boxes and I start looking to inspect them. Are, are things going to be okay? And there's some bubble wrap, there's some butcher block paper on them, but it's all kind of torn, it's messed up, it's terrible. And so now you're just hoping. So I pull out the bar stools, I pull out the pieces, the cushions, the, uh, the wooden legs and stuff, and everything is scratched. Everything is scratched. They look terrible. And I'm thinking, great. Now I've got to figure out what I'm going to do. So, you know, you go to Amazon's website. You start looking at how do you make a return if something got damaged? What do you do? And so I find out right away, okay, so I'm going to be able to return them and I'm going to be able to get them replaced. And I recognized at that point, I probably should have paid attention. I didn't. But I thought I ordered them from Amazon. And then I realized there's a third-party vendor that, that is who uh, packaged them. And then there is another company that's the shipper. So I've got three entities that I'm working with. The people I bought it from, the people they outsourced it to, and then the people that shipped it. Now I gotta tell you, Ellen and I sitting there that day, I don't really care where the fault is. I just want bar stools that look nice. And you and I could look around and say, look, look, I, I don't care, Amazon, I don't care. Fix the problem. I just want my bar stools to look nice. And it occurs to me, you know who cares? Amazon cares. Amazon cares. Because are their, their reputation's on the line. I ordered it through Amazon, so they care. Who they outsource it to is the company they outsource that to. Can they be relied upon to deliver a quality product in a timely fashion? The shipping company that they use, can they trust the shipping company will get a product from point A to point B without the box being torn up? If you're Amazon, it matters. And for so long, when you and I come to Scripture and we hear it all the time, you and I have both heard it, this book, this Bible, you know, it's not really God's Word. It can't be perfect. There's a lot of good stories. There's all kinds of errors in it. There's all kinds of things that don't make sense. There's things that are horrific in here. How could you ever articulate that a God, a loving God could write these things? And I recognize that if we buy into that stuff, you and I say, well, there's all kind of transmission errors. I mean, it was handwritten from generation to generation. And then we may be left with the idea of, does it, I mean, does it matter? Does it ma matter if we can trust it? And I think God would say, you may ask the question. I'm going to tell you, yes, it matters. Can you trust the author to provide a copy of scriptures for you that are trustworthy? God's reputation's 
on the line. And so as we talk this morning, recognizing we're going to talk about the gift of the Scriptures. And so my hope, I'll tell you now, is that when you leave here this morning, that you will say, I've got a great confidence in this book of what the Lord has provided for us. Last week when we started this series on to know God, I started with an essay that talked about our godless era is dead. That there's this return to spirituality uh, that we're seeing in our world. Now, I don't know what you thought about it. He makes a comment that we're spiritual animals, is that we've got this side to us that recognizes that we are spiritual beings. And so we want to learn how to lean into that. The future is not an atheist in space, but we're going to go back and we're going to learn about this God, that God put that inside of us. And so it's against that backdrop. I, you and I can look around. I, I told you, I read it and thought, well, how encouraging. People are looking at the dead ends of this world. And so that's great. However, when we come to the scriptures and part of what we were talking about last week uh, is how do we get to know the Lord? Well, we get to know him through the scriptures. So if our godless era is dead, we might expect that people are going back to look at the scriptures. What does scripture say? So when I come across a Gallup poll like this and you see the downward trend of people seeing the importance of scripture, then I'm left with the, there must be a gap. We haven't, we haven't crossed the, the bridge yet that all of a sudden we're recognizing our godless era is dead, but we have yet to say, I'm going to cross the bridge and say, well, then I see that the scriptures are going to be really important for me. So how am I going to move into that? So this morning, what I'd invite you to do is turn in your copy of scripture to Psalm 19. We're going to walk through this passage today, or these, this, these passages today. We're going to turn to two passages. Both of them are going to be in Psalms. Uh, and then the rest of the passages I'll have uh, up on the screen. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this idea of the gift of the Scriptures and what the Lord has given or provided for us. And so when we talked last week, I uh, also had shared this, is that we have been invited into this quest to know the Lord. We looked at a passage in Ecclesiastes, is that we all carry a couple of burdens, every one of us. We carry the burden of, of recognizing that there's a God who's in control. Two, we want to understand how he's in control and what he's doing. And then three, is we're going to not be able to figure it out. But out of the kindness of God, he invites us to his table where we can sit at his table and we can learn from him and we can learn about him. We won't be able to grasp him. You won't be able to get to the end of the year and say, I finally figured this God out that I worship. But we will get to the end of the year. If we invest our time wisely, we will get to the end of the year and say, I know him better because I sat at the table with him. He kept inviting me to come to the table. I couldn't figure it out. He said, that's okay, you can't figure it out. But what you can do is come sit at the table with me because I'm all loving and I'm all knowing and I'm all powerful and I don't change. And I'm completely holy and set apart and I'm for you and I'm in your corner and I don't want you to be a slave. I don't wanna treat you like a slave and me be your master, no, no, no. I wanna be your father and I want you to be my son or my daughter. And so if we get to the end of 2024, and we continue to come back and sit at the table, then maybe, just maybe, we're going to know more about him at the end of this year than we did when this year started. So what I'd like you to do is look with me at Psalm 19. We're going to begin with the idea that God has spoken, is that this God of ours could have remained silent. If he had chosen to remain silent, we couldn't have strong-armed him. We couldn't have done anything about it. But he chose to speak and he chose to engage us and reveal himself to us. And Psalm 19 shows us that. Look at Psalm 19, verse 1. 
David writes this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all of the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy, its rising is from the end of the heavens, a circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The first thing, way that God has spoken is he speaks to us through creation. If I were to ask you, how many of you say, I feel really drawn to the Lord at the beach? There'd be some of you that said, I love the beach. Give me the sun, give me the sand, give me the repetition of the waves. I like the, the waves coming back and forth. I like the vastness of the ocean. And then there'd be some that says, man, I love the mountains. I love the magnitude and the size of the mountains. I feel so small and I know that God loves me and cares for me and he's attentive to all this and he, want, he cares for me. God has spoken to us in creation. And according to Paul in Romans 1, because of that, everybody has the capacity to see that, which is part of Paul's argument in Romans 1, is that God has revealed himself enough for us to look around and say, there has to be a God. There's too much order in this world. There's too much behind this. This isn't by chance. But what we know is this, is in addition to God speaking through creation, which everybody gets, he's provided the scriptures this book comprised of 66 smaller books. And he's spoken to us in this. And so when Jesus says in his prayer, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. Recognize this, is Jesus has prayed and declared that everything in this book as the word of God is true. We can trust it. We can know what is true based on the scriptures. Those are significant statements. So when we come to the scriptures, and this word that we use is called the canon, okay? When we talk about it, think with me, that word gets used in other ways. If you're a Star Wars fan, you may talk about the canon of the Star Wars uh, world. And so it's all of those books that comprise it. Where does that word come from? Well, it comes from a Greek word that means read. If you think about a read, due to the length, it was the accuracy of the read that was it. So it became the measurement. So when you start having a measurement, the question is, how do we measure this? How do we measure what's going on? Because there's two measurements. There's an internal measurement and there's an external measurement. The internal is this. There's 66 books. Do each of the 66 books represent the authority and the divine authority of what God has written? Okay? So that's the intrinsic. The intrinsic evidence or quality that says this has the quality of divine inspiration. So each of the 66 books that are in here met that regard. When you put them all together, now we look extrinsically at it and we say, these 66 books are our authority for life. We can trust this. God has provided this for us. And they all measure up. So when we talk about the Old Testament canon, when we talk about the Old Testament canon, 39 books that come together, and here's how they break down. The historical books. Think with me about the historical books. They're narrative books where we say, okay, well, God did this. God called Moses. God called Abraham. God did this. They lived in the wilderness. God provided in the wilderness. They're narratives. They tell us the history of God's relationship with his people. Then you've got five poetical books. We will also call those wisdom literature. And so the, it's not narrative. They're beautiful words. They have melody to them. They use more figures of speech. 
wisdom literature, 17 prophetic books. This is what to expect. This is what's coming. If you do not walk with the Lord, there will be consequences. These will be the consequences, but God loves you and God wants to have a relationship with you. This is how things are going to play out. There's a Messiah coming. This is how you're going to know the Messiah. So this is what he's going to look like. This is where he's going to be born. These are the conditions in which he's going to be born under. So we have all of those things. Now, recognize the Old Testament written to the Jewish people. When they're forming the canon and they're trying to figure out what books fit in the old canon, they really never have much of a battle with that. Why? Because the Old Testament is a history of Israel. So they knew what books were authoritative. They knew which ones were right. If there had been a book that said, and then the Israelites flew to the moon, they'd be like, we never went to the moon. So get rid of that. That book doesn't fit. And so you had this, this time period where Israel is tracing their history and they know that it's authentic and they know that it's authoritative because it is the story of God working in them. There never was a struggle to accept the books of the Old Testament. But then the Old Testament ends. Jesus himself tells us, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, referring to John the Baptist. That's the way that we know that it came to an end. The Old Testament is over. We have all the books. Those 39 books are over. That's the totality of our Old Testament. They have the intrinsic qualities of divine inspiration. Each one of them measure the test. Put them all together, and this is the authoritative story of God's working in Israel and the promise of a coming Messiah. So now we move to the New Testament. We have multiple genres there again. The four Gospels represent or all tell the story of the life of Christ. We have one historical book, the book of Acts. So it's a history book. It talks to us about what happened after Jesus' resurrection and the launching of the church. We would say that the church was launched in Acts chapter 2. And so how does that come about? Well, you can read that story in the book of Acts. We have one prophetic book in the New Testament. It's called the book of Revelation. It's end times. It's all the things that are, are lay ahead for us. And then we have 21 epistles. Epistles being another word for a letter. 21 letters that were written from an author to a group of people or a church or to an area. And so they write about it. But unlike the Old Testament where it was the history of Israel that there never was a debate, these are the books, the New Testament was real different. Because of the Roman Empire, the road system, the language and everything, you got books popping up all over the place like, well, this belongs in the Scriptures. This belongs to the Bible. This clearly has to belong in the Bible. So now they're debating. I don't know. Should this be in? Should this not be in? Well, this says this crazy story. Does it fit? Does it fit with the whole? Does it have the internal qualities to recognize divine authority? And how does it fit with the rest of the books? Because it's got to fit in with everything else or it's going to be in conflict. So how do you decide? Well, they start looking at things like, can you tie this back to an apostle? Can we draw backwards to the apostles? Does it fit with the whole of Scripture? How has the church received it? And so you end up with all of these terms that you're saying, okay, so what are we going to do? How do we move into that? The way that we speak about it is you talk about recognizing the canon. You recognize it. You don't get to confer authority. God confers the authority. What we pray for is the ability to recognize the authority. So here's when we got the 27 books that are in our New Testament now. These are the first people in the first church councils that recognize that. If you look at Jerome, he was a historian. Uh, he was a teacher. He was the son of Eusebius, if you recognize that name from history. Uh, but there's Jerome and then Augustine, who was a bishop. He was a church father. 
look at their years of their life and recognize that that early in the calendar, we have these two people saying these 27 books of the New Testament are authoritative. If you look at the two church councils that are represented there, the Council of Hippo, 393, was the first council that said these 27 books are the books that God intended to be in our New Testament. We're not adding any extra. You had seasons where books were coming and going. Let's add this one. No, that one didn't fit. Let's add this one. Yeah, this one belongs. But by the third council of Carthage in 397 AD, the 27 books that are in my New Testament and your New Testament right now were the books that were recognized. I want you to hear that because I want you to know that the Bible that you have is the Bible that the capital C Church has gathered around, has studied, and lived out for the last 1,700 years because of who Christ is and what he's preserved for us. We have this as the authority. Now, some of you may have grown up in a tradition that had additional books of the Bible. And you're saying, well, what do we do with those? Why does, why does my Bible have fewer books now than what I used to have? Those books were called the Apocrypha. They're all written pretty much between 300 B.C. and 100 A.D., they have an interesting history in that they were all written by Jewish writers, but the Jewish people never accepted them as Scripture. They recognized the Jewish writer, but they did not recognize them as going into or being appropriate for Jewish Bible. Now, I told you that you had to look at two things. You had to look at, did each individual book have the integrity and the authority of divine inspiration, and then how did they fit into the whole? Part of the issue with those books known as the Apocrypha were this as we see at least three teachings that are tied solely to the Apocrypha, such as purgatory, such as merit for good works, is that we can earn God's favor through good works, uh, and that we would pray for people who have already been deceased. Those three doctrines are solely based out of the Apocrypha. And so there was a conviction that said they don't measure up because they don't align with the rest of Scripture. So we have these scripture passages. We've got these 39 books in the Old Testament. We have 27 books in the New Testament that together form 66, which are the canon. But God didn't just dictate the Bible. He used human authors. And we see that when we talk about this human authorship. When we read this, we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, know this, we've got to know this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, is that this wasn't somebody that sat down and said, let me write the Bible. Let me write something to hand down for all of time that is 100% truth-based. Nobody did that. Instead, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's our phraseology, it's really important, is that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As we've got God speaking and inspiring people to write in accordance with who they are, their personalities, the way they think, the way they engage life, their circumstances. What does that mean? Well, Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and wrote the book of Acts was a medical doctor. We know that about him. And as a medical doctor, he's precise and he knows to be precise. He's meticulous, he pays attention to details. And you can tell in the way that he writes. So take him and then take John, who wrote the gospel, who wrote the epistles, okay? John is a simple writer. John was a fisherman. 
I got to tell you, when you start studying Greek, they always have you start with John because John's rather straightforward. So when John writes this and he says, and this is the testimony, hey, get this, don't miss this. He puts it as simple as he can put it forth. God gave us eternal life. This life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Do you see how accessible John is? He's not complex. He's profound. He's carried by the Holy Spirit. He's authoritative in what he writes, but he's not particularly scholarly. There's nothing in that that you and I would say, man, that's a huge vocabulary. You know who had a huge vocabulary? You know who was difficult? Paul. Paul was incredibly difficult. He was schooled in the best schools. He had the best teachers, the best training, the best mentors, all of those things. I don't know if you've ever been guilty of a run-on sentence. Every level of English teacher I ever had would tell you I'm guilty of the run-on sentence. You know the longest sentence in the Bible? I bet you everybody knows the shortest. Jesus wept, right? John eleven thirty-five. Anybody know the longest? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. This is one sentence in the Greek where Paul runs everything together. He uses participles. He keeps connecting them. And this comes out as one sentence. If you look in your English Bible, our translators have turned it into many sentences. But know this, God was no less involved in writing or inspiring John to write John than he was with Paul writing what Paul wrote. He's completely authoritative, using the authors and the human authors that he employed within their personality, within their training, within their aspect of life for how they think about things. Are we surprised? No, we're not surprised. We've got 100 disciple now plus 100 uh, disciple now people. If you were to go up to them today and say, hey, tell me about it, I bet you're going to have at least 85 different versions, at least 85 different versions. And if, for the introvert, you could say, hey, how was it? Like, man, I just need a break from people. I hope I don't see anybody tonight. I hope I don't see anybody tomorrow. It's been too many people. They were all up in my space. I couldn't get away from them, and it was loud. The extroverts, they're going to go home today, and you're going to say, do you need a nap? Or like, are you kidding me? Like, I could go to sleep. My tank is so full right now. Last week, I told a story about going into a gas station uh, and coming out with a pickle out of a common pickle jar at a gas station uh, for my wife. And I put it in a sleeve and brought it to her. Now, those are the facts, okay? I walked into the store with my dad. I walked out of the store with my dad. And now I had a pickle in a sleeve. Now, if you ask Ellen, well, let's begin with me. If you ask me, I walk in there like, Ellen loves pickles. We're brand new dating. I've paid attention to her. So I'm going to impress her that I know that she likes pickles. So let me buy a pickle and I'm going to show up. Some people bring roses. I'm bringing a giant dill pickle from a, garb uh, from a gr uh, grocery store gas station. So I'm like, I'm doing pretty great. I'm sure my dad was looking at me like, son, you have never bought a giant pickle in a, gr in a gas station ever. What are you doing? Dad, I'm trying to impress Ellen. She likes pickles. And I'm sure my dad was like, that's my boy. He's paying attention. He likes pickles. He likes her. He knows the way to her heart is through this giant dill pickle. If you're Ellen, you just saw me and my dad walk in to the gas station, and now I'm walking out, and I'm carrying this pickle in this sleeve. And I'm sure she's looking at it thinking, what is that? And I'm like, I got you a pickle. Thanks. Now, the story's the same, but we have different perspectives. In accordance with who Ellen is, who I am, who my dad is, 
We're all different. And so when we talk about God has spoken, he spoke through creation. We all have the same grid through which we can see creation. But he spoke through human authors. And through the human authors is the Holy Spirit carried them, inspired them to write in accordance with who they are. And they gave scripture to us through their perspective. That's why we can have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they don't all sound the same. And they don't all have the things in the same order because they all had different perspectives. And they all saw things differently. So let me catch you up and give you a flow chart on where we are right now. This Bible that we have began as thoughts in God's mind, and he revealed them to the authors, whether it's Paul, John, whoever. He revealed it to the authors. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit, carrying them along, and all of a sudden they wrote what are known as the original manuscripts of the Bible. They went through the process of canonicity. So we have, uh, we have Jerome, and we have Augustine, and we have Hippo, Hippo, and we have Carthage. And all of a sudden, we have the collection of the 66 books from before 400 AD that the churches rallied around and gathered around as the Word of God and the Scriptures for us. And all of a sudden, what we can see is this is where we've been. God has spoken. He spoke through creation, but he's most completely spoken to us through the Word of God. So if he's spoken and it's inspired, then we come to the reality of it, has, it cannot be, have errors in it. Now think with me, when Paul writes this to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now that word literally means exhale, that you, is that the word of God is God and who he is. And the moment God, it is profitable. It's profitable. Because God has breathed this out for you and for me. It's profitable. How so? Well, Paul writes four ways it's profitable. One is it's profitable because it can teach us. Where we didn't know, we can now know. For reproof. Where we did our own thing and it exposes where we're wrong. You thought this, that's not right. Let me teach you this. For correction. That was, this is what's true. This is how you've been living. It's wrong. So let me correct you back to truth. Training in that we don't have to always live in trial and error. We can grow up in the word and we can learn and we can be discipled in the scriptures such that we can grow. But recognize this. The moment God exhales for you and me, it's profitable. It can teach us. It can show us where we're wrong. It can correct us and put us back on the right path. And it can train us in such a way that we don't have to go on wrong paths. Why? So that the man or the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. It's without error. We can trust it. We can trust what it says. We can trust all of those things. We see it. That was Paul in the New Testament. You go back to Isaiah where the Lord said, I didn't speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. No, I said, hi, I'm Yahweh. All of those perfections we talked about last week, those are all true about me. And so I speak the truth. Matter of fact, I can't speak anything other than truth. I declare what's right. And all of a sudden, what you and I see is this is when we take out the scriptures, which is why we always encourage you to open up scriptures, to look at the scriptures. If we don't want you to take our word for it, we want to show you what the scriptures say and you put your life next to it. And if there is any variation, we don't try to make scripture accommodate what we think or feel. Everything that we think or feel accommodates into scripture. Why? Because the Lord says, I speak truth. 
I declare what's right. And all of a sudden we say, okay, so that's prophet Isaiah. Is Isaiah who brought that? No, go back to Numbers. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. It's one of the perfections we talked about last week. He is he's immutable. He doesn't change. Why do we change? Because we want to do something better? There's never been anything he didn't do perfect. Why do we change? Because we learn something. He's always known everything. He's omniscient. He's never needed to change anything. He speaks truth. He speaks life. He declares what's right. He's never had to change. So why would he change his mind? If he changed his mind, he would change it to being wrong. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will not fulfill it? It's completely without error. So we can trust it. And what happens is you and I can look up and say, but people tell me there's all these errors. There's all these things wrong with it. I don't, what, what do I do with that? Have we ever looked at it? Because when we want to talk about something, take our Disciple Now group and say, you know what? If you want to know what happened at Disciple Now, we would be better to ask them today than we would be next year. Because what we recognize is the account will be more accurate the closer it is to the event than the longer the time period. Ask them today if you want to know what Disciple Now was like. Don't ask them in six months. They will forget some things. The other thing we do, if you really want to know what Disciple Now is, was like, don't ask just one of them. Ask a hundred of them. Because it's against that backdrop that we're going to get a better picture of things. All right, so when we come to literature and we talk about can we trust the validity of a source, we come to a chart like this, okay? Plato and Aristotle, we're pretty sure they existed, right? You had to read them at some point. And Plato and Aristotle, who lived a couple of centuries before Christ, we have an average of six manuscripts from each of them, 1,300 years after they lived, okay? We have no idea if they're accurate because we can't know. There's only six of them that 1,300 years later. So when we come to the Homer's The Iliad, which I know was a personally exciting book for me to read, there's 643 copies of it. And we're not really sure how many years after because it was passed on word of mouth for so long. But they've decided that what happens when you have 643, you lay them all out on a big table and you read it line by line and you decide and you see which sentence is in all of those. And if it's there, okay, this probably was authentic. And so you start working through it and you say, okay, well, there's a mistake. There's a difference here. Well, that looks like it was a typo. They weren't typing, they were handwriting. So it looks like their handwriting was messy. It smudged, whatever. I can understand the mistake. The Iliad is considered to be the best attested book of all time. And that's only true if you don't apply the same standard to the scriptures. Because the moment we take it to the scriptures, what we say is this. We've got more than 14,000 copies of portions or entire New Testaments written that are within 100 years of the life of Christ. And we lay out, that's a big table, you lay all 14,000 of those out and you start working through them. What does it say? What does it say? Can we understand? All right, there's a typo. They misspelled a word. They were copying. They copied the same line twice. I can see what they did there. And you start working through it. And you get to a point where you say there's 99.5% accuracy, which is greater than the Homer's the Iliad. And here's the thing, and I get it, because I'm the guy that's like, but what about the 5%, 0.5%? I mean, come on. If it, that verse is the way, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, that's a pretty significant verse to get wrong. 0.5%. It's about 50 errors. We're not exactly sure what they say. It works out to two paragraphs, about five Bible verses. You know, when we're talking about these errors that are there, 
There were 350 places where we could not figure out if the phrase was Jesus Christ, our Lord, or our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not losing our faith over Jesus Christ, our Lord, or our Lord Jesus Christ. We start working through this and recognize this. We're down to two paragraphs, five Bible verses. We're not exactly sure what it says, but what if it's really important? And I'm thankful for people who give their life to study this stuff. Of those 50 passages for consideration, there's not a single one that represents an article of faith or a precept of duty, which is not abundantly sustained by other and undoubted passages. Here's the great news, church. You want the good news? This Bible that we can walk around with, carry, you may have more than one. We make them available. You can grab one if you don't have one off the card in the back. You're carrying it on your phone, iPads, tablets, whatever, carrying it in your hand. Know this. Is the God who provided this scripture, has preserved this scripture. This is essentially pure down to the level that we can trust exactly what we have in our hands. Does it matter? It mattered to Amazon, and it matters to God. We recognize that there were copying errors. Humans were doing it. The question is, when the scriptures were written, did God give a perfectly clean and pure Scripture, of course he did, because he cannot be anything less than holy and perfect. So let's update our flowchart. These things that began or originated in the thoughts of God revealed to human authors who were inspired, so they start writing uh, the original manuscripts. Now we have a canonicity at Carthage, uh, excuse me, the council at Carthage, the third one. We get our 66 books. We go through text criticism. We have modern and Greek, uh, modern Greek and Hebrew Bibles. And then we have translations, which bring us to our modern English Bibles, the ones you and I are holding in our hands right now. God has spoken, and he's spoken without error. Here's what else is good. Because he's spoken, he's given us everything we need. It's complete. It's complete. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things pertaining to life and godliness. Scripture, it's true. Scriptures don't tell us that two plus two equals four, but we don't need to know that for life and godliness. This scriptures have recorded everything you and I need for our walk with the Lord. The invitation to come sit at his table as a son or a daughter, to get to know him, he's given us everything in this book. So when we come to the table, we open up the scriptures. Remember last week, what keeps us from doing that? Our self-reliance, our arrogance, and our rebellion against God. We come with a teachable, receptive heart, and we sit there and we open up the scriptures that God has so miraculously provided for us and even more miraculously preserved for us. We have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that you and I might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is this world because of sinful desire. That's been provided for you and me because of who he is and what he's done. We have everything we need. And because we have everything we need, all of a sudden, guess what? It's authoritative. You know what? God doesn't back away from telling us it's authoritative. God is really clear. Everything that I command you to do, you shall be careful to do. Pay attention. When I speak, I speak with the authority that I I have because I am God. So everything I command you to do, I want you to do it. You're not going to add to it. Don't take away from it. Don't add to it. 
don't subtract anything either. Because I've spoken. You've got the complete uh, revelation of everything I need. That's why we want you to open up your copy of Scripture. If he's spoken and he's inspired, what's our role? Turn over with me, if you would, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. If those things are true, and we believe them to be true, if you believe them to be true, then I think our heart will echo the words of the psalmist. Psalm 119, look at verse 44. If we believe that he spoke and we believe that he inspired, isn't this the most natural response? Lord, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Thou shalt walk in a wide place for I've sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame for I find my delight in your commandments which I love. I will lift my hands towards your commandments which I love and I will meditate on your statutes. That's the most natural response. If you believe that he spoke and you believe that he inspired, that's the most natural response in the world. I was taught this as a student. I still do that when I was a student. I still do this. Spec. When I open up the scriptures, what does God have for me? Spec. It's an acronym. I still do this. Is there a sin for me to avoid? Is scripture telling me something to avoid? Is there a promise for me to claim? Is there encouragement for the day? Is there a command for me to follow? Or is there just general knowledge that God wants me to have? Now look back down with me at Psalm 119, starting in verse 44. And we're going to keep in mind as we read this, because I would encourage you, if you don't have a way that you study the Bible, write down spec. Is there a specific sin to avoid, a promise to claim, encouragement for the day, a command to follow, or knowledge that the Lord has gifted to us? What am I looking at when I read it? Scripture's going to fall into one of those. So look with me at verse 44. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place for I've sought your precepts. Sounds encouraging to me. All of a sudden, if I'm going to keep your law continually, I'm going to find a wide path. It's not that there's a pa- only a path. It's not that it's a narrow path. There's a wide path. I'm going to be able to walk with you in such a way that I'm going to experience the freedom of walking in a wide place. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and not be put to shame. I find encouragement in that. The Lord is sufficient. As he begins to transform me, as I study his word, I will learn wisdom, I will have discernment, I will be able to speak words of truth, and I will be able to represent the Lord well. I find encouragement in that. I find promises in that. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. What a sweet phrase, right? Knowledge of the Lord is that as I start giving myself to this, I will fall in love with this because of who you are. And all of a sudden I start saying, okay, I get it. I get it. Let's update our flow chart because we've added a couple more blocks. So now that which began in the mind of God, revealed to the authors, inspired them to write. We've gone through canonicity. We've gone through the modern English Bible. And now we get to illumination. Did the Holy Spirit inside of you and me, when we read the scriptures and our soul and the Holy Spirit inside of us leaps with joy that we're engaging with the word of God? He turns on the lights for us. Oh, I see. That's why you and I can come to the Lord after knowing a passage for years and we keep seeing it offer us fresh insights because he turns on the lights in new ways for us. And then we've got to interpret it. What does it mean? And that becomes a thought in our mind that we apply and it begins to change our lives. That which began in the mind of God has transformed our daily life. 
See, as we begin working through this, we say, oh, I get it. I get it. Because all of a sudden, it's going to bring fruit. Like what kind of fruit? I mean, like fruit that I want? Well, yeah, this is our response. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. You and I are being transformed. And we represent the glory of God on our face everywhere we go. If you ever feel like you're in darkness, well, okay, spec, specific, sin to avoid, a promise to claim, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I find a promise in that. I find encouragement in that because I'm sure like you, you find yourself in darkness. I know that I do. And so the question is, what do we do in the darkness? Well, we look for a lamp. Scripture tells us it's true. We know it's true. There's freedom in that. And so all of a sudden, where do you need a lamp? You're questioning your purpose in life? Maybe that's where you need a lamp. Battling guilt and shame? Need to lay that down? There's a lamp. Scripture. Feeling hopeless? We've got a lamp for that. Consumed by conflict? Devastated by loss? Stressed about your future? I get it. There's a lamp. And nothing else in the world can do that. The Scriptures do that. And that happens. All of a sudden, we become transformed. Our transformed life communicates to others. And people say, hey, you used to need a lamp. You used to live in darkness. You're not living in darkness anymore. I see a lamp in you. What's going on? Because you're radiating this glory that I don't know what to do with it. And we say, hey, let me tell you about where I got invited. It's not that I figured out life. It's not that I figured out God. I just know this. I became a son or a daughter of the king, and he invited me to come sit at his table with him. So that's what I'm going to go do. I'm going to go sit at the table, and I invite you to come to the table with me. And all of a sudden, what we can say is, oh, man, where else would I want to be? Because this Bible that you and I have, these 66 books, it's not a rule book. It's not a manual. It's far greater than that. What is it? This is printed in your bulletin. I'd encourage you to save it, turn it into a bookmark, whatever you want to do. This Bible is written over 1,500 years, and it was written in 66 books with several genres, narrative, law, wisdom, prophecy, gospel, epistle. All of those genres represented in this by 40 different authors. I'm not sure we could have 40 people in this room write a book together and have it fit together. 40 different authors over a 1,500-year time period. Culture changed. The world changed. The genre changed. Kings, farmers, fishermen, doctors, scholars in three different languages on three different continents with a single message of God's loving quest to redeem mankind because out of the kindness of God, he wanted to invite you to the table that you could know him. You can't grasp him, but you can know him. We can find comfort at the table because of who he is because at the end of the day, it was authored by God and preserved for you and me. There's only one book that has that track record, and it's the Scriptures. And so we would invite you to study with us. Band's going to come up, and we're going to close. Here's the invitation. Come to the table. Come to the table. Be receptive. Be humble. Lord, what do you have for me? We've got to leave our rebelliousness behind. We've got to leave our arrogance behind. And sit there with the Father, the one who's eternal, who is the perfection of love who doesn't change, who's completely holy, he's completely omniscient, and he's got an invitation for you to come. And that invitation is that we can know him, and we will know him through this book. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. 
You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.